Some, uh, some years ago, <clears throat> a young man got in trouble with the law. And his lawyer persuaded the judge to give him a suspended sentence. Years later, this lawyer was elected judge. And the same man he had once defended had committed another criminal offense. When the man was brought to court to stand before the judge, he hoped the judge who once defended him might be merciful. But the judge said, Then I was your advocate. Now I am your judge. And I must hold you fully accountable for what you have done. In this present age, Jesus offers to be our advocate, our Savior. But for those who reject Him, He will someday be their judge. And who will be able to stand before Him? That's a good question. And that same question just so happens to be the last words in our passage this morning. A passage filled with judgment and wrath. We have made it to Revelation chapter 6. Where the scene shifts from the activities of worship in heaven back to the earth. If you recall in chapter 5, the Apostle John visited the throne room of God. And he noticed a scroll with seven seals in the hand of God the Father. This scroll was like a title deed to the world. It symbolized ownership. And the Father wanted to pass it on like an inheritance to the rightful heir. One person was found worthy to take the scroll. And he was the Son of God. The Lion of Judah. The Lamb that God had sent to take away the sin of the world. Jesus took the scroll from the Father. Ownership was transferred And now he begins a step-by-step process, beginning in chapter 6, of preparing the world for his second coming.
this process we call the tribulation period. Now to get a better understanding of the tribulation period, and I debated this, I feel it is necessary. We first look at a passage found in Daniel chapter 9. So turn to Daniel chapter 9. In this passage, the prophet Daniel is praying for his people, the Jews. They are in captivity in Babylon. And while he is still praying, God sends his angel, Gabriel, to give him some encouraging words. Actually, a prophecy. And this is what Gabriel says to Daniel, beginning with verse 24. I'm assuming it's on the screen behind me. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Stop there. If you notice, this passage starts with the words 70 weeks. And don't let the word weeks mislead you. In Hebrew, it is the word Shabua, which means a period of seven. Okay? A period of seven. Just like we might use the word dozen for the number 12, weeks refers to seven. Are you with me? So, 70 weeks literally means 70 sevens. Okay? 70 sevens. And in context, in context, it is 70 sevens of years. Or if you do your math, 490 years. Have I lost anybody? Okay. So 490 years have been set for Daniel's people. The Jews. Those are Daniel's people. And his holy city. That being Jerusalem. This is very important. These 490 years relate specifically to Israel. 
not the church. The church is not in focus here. God has set 490 years for the Jews for a purpose. That being to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, which means wickedness, to make atonement for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Taken as a whole, this speaks to Israel's eventual repentance and forgiveness of sin by turning to Jesus Christ as their Messiah and the establishment of the Lord's earthly kingdom at His second coming where everything is completed and made right. That's the eventual outcome after the 490 years have run their course. And fortunately for us, we are told when the calendar started. Look at verse 25. So, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks. Don't let weeks confuse you. Seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Okay. Here, Gabriel reveals two out of the three segments of this 490 year period. The first segment is what? Seven weeks. Or we could say seven sevens. Seven sevens, which equates to 49 years. And it begins with the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Not just the temple, not just the temple, but the city with its buildings and streets, a trench and its walls. This decree was made in 445 B.C., when King Xerxes gave Nehemiah permission 
safe passage and the necessary supplies to return to Jerusalem to build the city. It likely took 49 years to rebuild Jerusalem after it had been completely desolate for several decades. So we have a good, firm starting point to work from. The second segment given by Gabriel is what? 62 weeks or 62 sevens or 434 years. It begins after the first segment and it extends up to the triumphal Entry where Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and publicly declares himself to be the Messiah. Are you with me? So, adding these first two segments together, they run consecutive. Adding them together from the decree, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the Lord's triumphal entry into that same city would be 69 sevens. 69 sevens. Or... 483 years. Okay? We'll talk about this more later in other other (laughs) messages, okay? 483 years. That's what we are up to. What did we start with? We started with 490 years. And 483 years have come and gone. So that leaves us with only one week. Or seven years remaining. So where are they? What happened to the remaining seven years? Well, we are given an answer in the first part of verse 26. Is it up behind me? Okay. It says, this is Gabriel speaking. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. And have nothing. So after the second segment. After the 62 weeks are completed. We are told the Messiah will be cut off. Executed. Crucified. 
And it's at that point the calendar stops with seven years remaining. The Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And as a consequence, they were set aside for a season to usher in the church age. Jesus talked about this with the Jewish leaders. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 42 and 43. This is what Jesus said. Did you never read in scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. And it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, This is Jesus talking. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Their loss was our gain. And so the church the church would now carry out God's mission to reach a lost and dying world who does not know Him. The church is now front and center. But after the church is raptured, after the church is raptured, after the church age has come and gone, then the calendar starts back up again with the remaining seven years called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is another word for Israel. The time of Jacob's trouble or what we call the tribulation period. A time where God's judgment and wrath is poured out upon the world. Literally, it will be hell on earth. But, it will serve a divine purpose. That being, to bring those who are lost, namely, the Jewish people, to repentance and salvation. That is the purpose after the 490 years have run their course. Now, before we begin to look at the tribulation period, I want to point out That we are going to see God's judgment and wrath poured out in a series of sevens. Okay? In a series of sevens. First, there are the seven seal judgments. 
Seven seals. They come from the scroll. And for the most part, the seals encompass the entire tribulation period. But toward the end, flowing from the seventh seal, we are introduced to the seven trumpet judgments. And from the seventh, from the seventh trumpet comes the seven bowl judgments. To, to get a mental picture of how this plays out, consider an old pirate's telescope. Do you see that behind me? So off to your... Okay, that's a different telescope. Okay. So obviously you have a, a larger section, and then it tapers into a smaller section, and then tapers into an even smaller section. When the, when the telescope is compressed, it's all compressed into the large section, correct? Can you see this? The large section is the seals. Once the seventh seal is reached, is ex- the, the centerpiece is extended. And once, and once we reach the seventh trumpet, the last piece, it's extended. That's the picture of how this all plays out, like a, like a pirate's telescope. Does that help? Okay, okay. So this morning we're going to look at six out of the seven seals. We'll look at the seventh seal later. So if you have your Bible... Turn to Revelation 6. Revelation 6. And we will start with the first two verses. Revelation 6, verses 1 and 2. John says, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures. Remember the four living creatures? I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. We are told that Jesus, who now has the scroll, breaks the first seal. And one of the creatures around the throne says, come. And this command is not addressed to John. It's addressed to the horseman. Then John sees a white horse. Now, if our biblical interpretation came from old cowboy movies, 
it would suggest this is one of the good guys. For we all know, it's a fact, we all know that good guys ride white horses. In fact, Jesus rides a white horse at his second coming. But this isn't Jesus. <laughs> he just wants to look like him. We're told this rider on the white horse had a bow. And a victor's crown was given to him. For he had the authority to repeatedly conquer. He had a bow. But if you notice, there's no mention of arrows. No arrows. Which suggests he didn't go to war. He carried his bow, but didn't have to use it to be victorious. It's a peaceful conquering. This individual starts his career as a peacemaker. A peacemaker. And this is what we are told by the prophet Daniel. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 9 and continue where we left off. Look at verse 27 to see what Gabriel told Daniel. And he says, And he, referring to this individual, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Gabriel is speaking about the tribulation period here. And at the beginning of it, this individual will bring about a peace treaty between Israel and her Arab neighbors that is promised for what? One week or seven years. And this And in this peace treaty with Israel, they will be allowed to rebuild their temple and be permitted to perform their Old Testament sacrifices and offerings. This accounts for those last seven remaining years we were looking for. And oddly enough, This is how the tribulation period starts. It starts with peace. It starts with peace. So this first rider 
on the white horse looks like a good guy. He's a peacemaker. That's how he conquers without bloodshed. But who is he? The rider on the white horse is symbolic of the Antichrist. And just so you know, that word anti means a couple of things. First, it means against. We know that. The Antichrist is against Christ. Hence the name. We know that. We expect that. But there is another meaning for anti. And it is in place of. In place of. The Antichrist opposes Christ and he also seeks to replace Christ, to be exalted and worshipped as Christ. He's a counterfeit Christ. He's a false Christ who brings peace. But it's a false peace. And it's a short-lived peace. The Apostle Paul also described the tribulation period starting in the same way. With peace. He said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, while they are saying peace and safety... Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. So before things get bad, they will appear good. There's going to be peace, but it doesn't last long. Because the second seal is broken. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Revelation chapter 6. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. That men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. Jesus breaks the second seal. And John sees another horse come out. It's a red one. And power is given given him who sits on it to take peace from the earth that people should kill one another. 
The second horseman is symbolic of war. War that will involve the the entire earth. Apparently, some type of global war. To what extent remains to be seen. I suspect that since the Antichrist will be instrumental in bringing false peace to the Middle East as a way to thrust himself onto the world stage, he will also be involved in this bloodshed. This time, using global war as a clever and deceptive means to strengthen and expand his own power and influence as a key world leader. This leads us to the third seal, verses 5 and 6. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked and behold a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius. And three quarts of barley for a denarius. But do not damage the oil and the wine. Jesus breaks the third seal. And John sees a black horse. And the one who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand for the purposes of measuring, of rationing. This horseman represents famine and starvation. Which would be, if you think about it, a natural outcome of global war. We're told a a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. A denarius is an average day's wage. That's what that is. So during this time, people will barely be able to provide the barest of necessities for themselves, much less their families. Food will be scarce Likely rationed. And yet, a command is given not to damage the oil and the wine. This command is difficult to understand. But it could mean that even in times of famine and starvation... The extras, the luxuries, will still be available to those who can afford them. 
the wealthy. It describes a time where the poor get poorer and the rich get richer. Greed will likely play a role just as it does now. And the Antichrist will probably use this condition as a tool to gain control over the economy. If you want to buy something, if you want to buy food, just take my mark. Take my mark. It's all plays together. So after global war and famine, the fourth seal is broken. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name of death. And Hades was following in him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Jesus breaks the fourth seal and John sees a pale, sickly, greenish-yellow-looking horse that has a rider whose name is Death and his sidekick is Hades. It's the Grim Reaper and the Gravedigger who are scooping up the dead from the famine, from war, from pestilence, and from wild beasts. Most likely, rats. Most likely, rats who carry disease. And we are told a fourth of the earth, easily over a billion people, have died. Death claims the bodies of the lost, and Hades claims their souls. So these are the four horsemen, often called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they appear to represent the events during the first half of the tribulation period. I believe they represent what Jesus described as the beginning of birth pains in Matthew chapter 24. Now we come to the fifth seal. And maybe we might expect another horseman. But that's not the case. Here the focus shifts back up to the throne room. 
in heaven. Look at verses 9 through 11. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Although we do not see the activity on the earth when the fifth seal is broken... What we do see are the results. We see the results. What we see is the result of persecution against those who become believers during the tribulation period. People will be turning to God And they will be persecuted and martyred for identifying with Jesus Christ. If you notice, these martyrs are not asking if vengeance is coming for their deaths. They know it's coming. They just want to know when it's coming. But they are told... To wait and rest until the number of the martyrs has been completed. In other words, there are more to be slaughtered during the tribulation period. So, this fifth seal represents. A widespread killing spree by the Antichrist against those who turn to Christ. Especially after the Antichrist breaks the peace treaty we saw in Daniel. In the middle of the tribulation period, in the middle of the week. And sets himself up to be worshipped as God. Then comes the sixth seal. And it's a doozy. Let's start with verse 12. Again, this is the Apostle John speaking. I looked when he broke the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake. 
And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Okay. This sixth seal represents events occurring in the last half of the tribulation period where John describes a world that appears to be coming apart, unraveling at the seams. A great earthquake shakes the entire globe Likely volcanic eruptions spew ash and smoke into the atmosphere, blacking out the sun. Just blacking out the sun. We're told the whole moon became like blood. Or as we experienced a couple years ago with all that smoke from the forest fires, how it changed the colors of the sun and the moon. The moon will look like blood because of all the smoke down here. John said the stars fell to the earth. The word for stars is asters. Asters. And it could mean any type of of body in the sky like asteroids or meteorites. This could be a a meteor shower or something much bigger like a comet falling to the earth. Understandably, people will run for cover to places that would likely seem to be the most stable like Caves and mountains. But they will soon discover their hiding places have been shaken and moved and collapsed. When they head for the islands to escape the mass hysteria and the chaos, they will learn that the islands have submerged as well. There's no place to run. There's no place 
to hide. So whatever this sixth seal is describing for us, we know it is earth shattering. It is earth shaking. It's catastrophic. And it's intensely fearful for those who dwell on the earth. All people, both great and small, everybody lives in terror as it appears they now recognize it is God's wrath turned against them. And the question is asked, who is able to stand? As I have said to you before, I do not believe the church will go through the tribulation period. I do not believe that. I believe the Bible teaches that. And I thank God for that. So what are we to do with all of this? What what are we to take from this passage? It reveals a lot about God, doesn't it? True to His nature... We still see that God is loving. For like any good parent, he gives a very clear warning. A very clear warning before he renders his judgment. There are no surprises coming. No gotchas. No surprises. In his love, God is laying it all out for us in advance. He's telling us what will happen, what must happen. And he's giving people an opportunity to come to him by faith. Now, he is a loving God. Secondly, we see God's mercy. We see God's mercy. God could just snap a finger. Just say the word. Just say the word. And in a flash, in a millisecond, those who are saved are in heaven. And those who are lost are in hell. God could do that. But in His mercy, in His mercy, God gives numerous opportunities for repentance to the lost. Both in the here and now and even during the tribulation period. In His mercy, God Patiently waits for people to come to him by 
faith. God is loving. God is merciful. Lastly, there is a reason why chapters 4 and 5 came before chapter 6. We need to be reminded that God is on His throne. Even during the worst of this, God is still in control. The judgments that take place on the earth during the tribulation period originated where? In heaven. It is Jesus who is removing the seals from the scroll. Setting everything into motion according to His good purposes and plans. God is loving. God is merciful. God is in control. We need to know that now. And we will see that later. So the question was asked, who is able to stand? And the answer is, only those who accept Jesus Christ as Savior and follow Him as Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, very difficult word. It was difficult to, to study, difficult to preach, maybe even difficult to hear. I thank you, Lord God, for being loving toward us, for being merciful. I thank you that you're in control. Even in our own difficult times, even in our own hardship, even in our own trials and tribulation, you are loving and merciful. You're in control. Father, when life seems confusing and chaotic and difficult, help us to trust you. Help us to lean on you, to rely upon you, to depend on you. Help us to look to you first, and second, and third. Help us, Lord God, never to take our eyes off of you and lose our focus of you. It's so easy to do. I am the first to admit that. Father, give us a zeal and a passion for you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be our everything. That you would increase and that we would decrease. And that you would be honored and glorified, lifted up. For you are the only one who can save. Thank you. 
In Jesus' name. Amen. There's one thing I didn't mention in the sermon. Well, I did a little bit. When Israel was set aside for a season, set aside for a season, I said that ushered in the church age, right? Us. And what was the purpose? That we, the church, and the church is not a building, it's people, it's people, that we, as the church, would share the truths of the gospel to the lost who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I'll be the first to admit as your pastor sometimes sometimes I forget what we're supposed to be doing that's why the Lord ushered into church the Jews rejected them it's now we pick up it's our job now to share the gospel truth. And they are and there's a simple gospel truth to those who will listen. To those who will listen. I've shared the truth with you many times. God has a purpose for us, doesn't he? For God so loved the world that he gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. That's His, that's the purpose. That's His purpose. That we would experience eternal life. That doesn't mean a life without trouble. In fact, he promised you're going to have trouble. No. But that we might have a full and meaningful life here in the here and now. And that when we die, we would be with him. We would know him. That was his purpose. That we would know him and have eternal life. That's what he wanted. God has a purpose. You all know John 3.16. Better than I do. God has a purpose. But we got a problem. Oops. We got a problem that prevents us from experiencing God's purpose. And what is that problem? Sin. It's in our DNA. We have a sin problem. 
And it prevents us from experiencing God's purpose, that being eternal life. God has a purpose. We got a problem. But God had a remedy. God had a remedy. Jesus said, I have come. I have come. That you might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. God is holy and just. And he has to punish sin like the judge I described to you at the very beginning. He can't turn a blind eye to it. He is holy and just and he has to punish sin. And yet he loves us. And so what did he do? He sent his only son to take our punishment. That's how this is reconciled. God has a purpose. We got a problem. God has a remedy. It's Jesus Christ. And we need to respond. We need to respond. Repent of our sin. If you're going the wrong way, turn around and go the other. Go towards Him. We're to place our faith in Jesus Christ. Trust who He is. Trust what He said is true. Trust He will do what He said He will do. Trust that He will save you. And then maybe the hardest. And that is to surrender to Him as Lord. He has to be the boss of your life. That is so hard, isn't it? Oof. Yes. Yes. And Jesus said, For whosoever whosoever shall call upon me on the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. Saved. In light of what we just covered this morning, I don't want to be there. I don't think you want your friends and family to be there. If anything, that should, that should encourage us to maybe to kind of venture. And I know it's scary for some, but to venture out. We've talked about this before. Maybe, it's, maybe it begins with nothing more than, can I pray for you? Maybe that's how it starts. And then it goes from there. Remember Joanne dealt with that, right? Yes. Sometimes that's just, just how it starts. Can I just pray for you? And let it go from there. I hope the, the message this morning was, wasn't too confusing. It confused me at times. <laughs> and I was preparing it. <laughs> but I hope, I hope it touched your heart. hope it motivated you. I know it's hard. We see something in the future, how it motivates us here and here and now, right? But even from that, we know God is still loving. 
He is still merciful and he's in control. We need to know that today. So, as Larry leads us in music, I would love to, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would love to introduce you to him, talk to you about him. If you're looking for a church home, we would love to have you. If you need somebody to pray with, I'd love to pray with you. However the Lord leads, just be obedient to what he calls you to do. So glad you were here uh, this morning, and, and uh, maybe, maybe you wanted... Uh, a little more details on some of the things that will be occurring. As we make our way through the book of Revelation, we will have plenty of time where we, where we get into some of the, the really nitty-gritty stuff. And so uh, that will all be coming. Uh, yeah, thank you for being here. I want to pray for our offering. Just a reminder, uh, the offering baskets are in the back. And also don't forget the uh, Lottie Moon offering if you so uh, choose to give. And then also I'm going to pray for our fellowship as well. Father, I thank you so much for, for uh, drawing us here today. Father, I pray that what, uh, what, we, what we learn here, what we receive here, we would carry outside these doors. And Father, I, I thank you that uh, you have called us uh, for a purpose. And that, bring, that being to share the gospel. So Father, I pray that you give us, give all of us opportunities to share, even pray, just pray for people, Lord. Give us opportunities to share with others what we know to be true. Father, I pray for our offering this morning. Lord God, I pray that you would bless the gift and the giver. Father, help us as a church to use your money wisely. And then, Father, also for our fellowship, bless our time together. Father, use it for your glory as well. Father, bless those who have prepared food and and brought food. And, Lord God, bless this food to our bodies. May you be honored and glorified in all that is said and done. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.